Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. All right, Revelation chapter number 18. We're gonna get straight to it this morning. So if you needed some mental exercises to warm yourself up, I apologize, I have none for you. We're getting straight to it. If you're new, we are working through this book of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, piece by piece. And if you're like, I haven't gotten the, the first 17 chapters, that's fine. You, most of it, probably 98% of it, will make complete sense if you haven't been here for the first 17 chapters. So we want to examine this particular one, chapter number 18, this morning. And I want you to look at, with me at verse number one. And let's read together verse number one. Actually, I'll read it and you can just listen, but we'll, we'll examine it together. Here's what it says. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. Meaning here's a messenger with a message and there's uh, kind of these strobe lights more or less that are flashing saying like, listen to this. This is all meant to communicate that there's great power uh, lightened with his glory. It's like, listen to this. This is going to be important. Verse number two, he cried mightily with a strong voice. And here's what he said. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now, we saw last week in chapter 17 that Babylon is this place that has a geographical location, and people debate what that location is. Is that actually going to be kind of a new Babylon that is about 50 miles from Baghdad and Iraq that kind of gets resurrected? Is that Rome? Is that uh, someplace in Sweden? Some have looked and said, maybe that's America. Uh, beside the point, I don't know, but it's some geographical location that has tentacles that reach out into the whole earth. And the tentacles are both religious and economic. We saw last week the religious tentacles in chapter number 17. This week, we're going to see more of the, of the economic tentacles. And it says that this place is done away with. This place is fallen in the end of verse number two. It's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit in a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So meaning this is satanic in its uh, influences. This is a place where you would find more uh, idolatry for sure, more false worship. And behind all of that, there is a devil behind the door. Behind all that are satanic influences that are pushing this. And then it tells you that it's also become this, this habitation of unclean and hateful birds, which is... It, it's a weird phrase, but it, it draws off of the Old Testament where the prophets would oftentimes come and tell a city, your demise is going to be that you're going to be the habitation of unclean birds. It would be like us saying, look, when, when it's all said and done, your family's gonna be gone and the house that you grew up in, crows are gonna surround it all day long and owls are gonna surround it by night. And you would say, ooh, that's creepy. And that's the point right? To, it's kind of this, this Scooby-Doo sort of make your skin crawl reference of there's going to be these, these crows and these owls and things that are, that are living there. Verse number three, for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. 
This is what chapter 17 centered on. And I'm not going to recapitulate all that chapter 17 was, but that was the core of Babylon's sins in chapter 17, which is she is making alliances politically, but those alliances are really hinged on false idolatry. They're hinged on religious apostasy and wanting to create a religious system of sorts that is not God-honoring, uh, that, is, that is not putting forth the one true God, but is causing people to fall into false worship. But the end of the verse is what chapter 18 centers on. And it's this uh, really unique phrase. It says, the merchants of the earth, they're rat- waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So what it's saying is this place has also been able to make a lot of people a lot of money. There's a lot of merchants who have waxed rich. It's become very profitable. And they have done this through the abundance of her delicacy. So more to come on that in a minute. But what it's saying is that here's a place that is profitable. Best we know, the profitability was also legal according to whatever system they had set up. And I would like to remind you at the onset this morning that just because something is profitable and just because something is legal does not make it moral, okay? You'll see that this is decried through the chapter and the thing that they made money on that was profitable and was legal was not righteous or moral and God had a problem with it, okay? So that's a good place to start when you're like, how can I make money? And go make money, I'm all for it. How can I make money? Well, ask yourself, is it legal? But don't stop there. Ask yourself, is it profitable? Because you don't need to sink your time or your resources into a sinking ship. But don't stop there. Ask, is this moral? Is this God honoring? Because there there are a lot of things that you can invest in that are sinful and are vice-ridden that do not actually lead to godliness. There's been a lot of statistics and surveys and and articles written looking at like, how can I make money quick? And you know some ways that you can make money quick? Vice, sin. There are a lot of people that make money off of pornography. There are a lot of people that make money off of dealing drugs. There are a lot of people that make money off of casinos or gambling or whatever vice it may be, but that's, we don't just filter things through legal profitable. There's also, does this line up with God and his word and his standards? Verse number four, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. So this is talking to God's people. Here's the instruction. You don't want to miss this. If you miss verse four, the whole chapter falls flat. And all you get is a bunch of information about this place and it means nothing for your life. But God's people come out of her, why? That ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. I want you to disassociate with her so that her sins do not domino into your life. I want you out of her because I don't want you partaking in the sins that she partakes of. And oh, by the way, If you partake in these sins, the judgment of God and the plagues may spew over onto you. You want to avoid that, right? This is the core of chapter number 18, is God's people look at this place that is going to fall and understand what her downfall was and avoid it. And that really is is what I want to talk to you about this morning, that's avoid these at all costs. 
avoid the sins of Babylon. You say, what are the sins of Babylon? I'm glad you asked. Verse number five. For her sins have reached unto heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Now that's, that's a really creative thing to say. If her sins were Jenga blocks, they would stack one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other, until they reached all the way to an almighty God. And this really is playing on the story of the uh, genesis of Babylon. If you remember, Babylon was previously known as Babel. And there's this whole story in the book of Genesis of them wanting to build a tower that reached to heaven. It was their idea of we're going to get to God through our own human effort. And God disrupted that and said, no, 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 no. You do not get to me by your own effort, right? And those, there are two buttons people push in an effort to get to God, their effort or God's grace. Push the your effort button and it doesn't work out very well. Push God's grace, it'll work out real well. And God disrupted all of that, but he uses that in almost an ironic sense and says, they did build something finally that reached to heaven. It was their sin tower. Verse number six, if you would underline every time it says the word double, there's double like all over the place in this verse. Reward her, even as she rewarded you. Double unto her double, according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. You say, all right, pastor, that was Shakespearean. Can you help me understand what that means? She has a cup and she filled it filled to the double, all right? If her sins could be contained in a teacup, it is overflowing and she's drinking from her saucer, all right? It's over. It's trying to say, she's crammed 40 ounces of sin into a 20 ounce glass. She's filled it to the double, right? And it says in the middle of the verse that you should double unto her double according to her work. So we're gonna go tit for tat here. We're gonna go eye for eye here. That she wants to keep filling up and filling up and filling up sin and building a sin tower and building a sin tower. See if the punishment and the judgment doesn't fill up and fill up and fill up right alongside of it. So the beginning of verse number six, reward or even as she's rewarded you. She's going to get her just desserts. She is going to fall. The sin that is built up, the sin that is filling up, 40 ounces of sin in a 20 ounce cup, it's a lot. That is actually going to be repaid. There is going to be divine retribution that is visited upon this place. Now that can strike some people as strange because you tell me as Christians today, are we to be people who go eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Are we to be people who say, if you do evil to me, I will reward your evil with punishment or judgment and I will reward evil for evil. Is, is that how we are supposed to be as Christians? Yes or no? Absolutely not. So then, so then how in the world does it say that God is going to go eye for eye with them? He's gonna reward double for double. He's gonna, he's gonna pay them back. Aren't I supposed to be like God, pastor? If pastor is eye for eye and tooth for tooth, am I not supposed to be like God? Shouldn't I do this as well? You're missing the point. There are some attributes and actions of God that are communicable, meaning you can share in them, but there are a whole host of bullet points on his job description that are not on your job description, right? There are God-sized things that God gets to do and God gets to do alone, such as create or redeem or in this case, judge. And you're not the judge. 
And thank God that you're not the judge and I'm not the judge because we can't see into the heart. We cannot perceive motives. We don't know what actually drives someone and you're, you're not the judge. But God is, right? And there is this dynamic in the Bible of God will judge and God will reward, uh, punish, he'll give punishments out where they need to be. He'll measure all that out one day. But this is not your circus and these are not your monkeys. It's his circus and his monkeys, right? This isn't for you. This is his job. And he's, he's accomplishing his job. He's telling you Babylon will fall. Judgment is going to come. And the judgment is going to fit the sins. The punishment is going to fit the crimes. Verse number seven, here are the sins. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen. I'm not a widow. I shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. What are the plagues? Death and mourning and famine. She shall be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now, if you're looking for it, here's what it said. Verse four, get away from her. Why? Because her sins are sticky and they're gonna get all over you. You don't want them. And if those sins stick to you, then there may be some judgment that sticks to you. Get, get away from it. What sins? Well, the sins that are built up like a tower, the sins that are double, the sins that are overflowing. Okay, what sins? Verse seven, here are the sins. Here's what you want to avoid at all costs. So number one, self-glorification. She, it says, how much she has glorified herself. There is a self-centeredness that is tantamount to self-deification. And Babylon's heart is, there is no other God but me. I am at the top of the food chain. I am number one. The world revolves around me. I am at the center. Babylon has this idea of, I'm going to glorify myself. If you were to ask someone from quote unquote Babylon, what house of worship do you belong to? They would say, my own house. My house of worship is my house where we worship the triune God of me, myself, and I. This, this is the worship that happens. It is a lack of glory to a creator God and a complete robbery of glory that they're trying to assume for themselves. Babylon is a cosmic bootlegger wanting to give like this knockoff cheap version of glory, but they're not wanting to give it. They're wanting to assume it and have it for themselves. And the problem with that is that it, the glory doesn't work that way. Glory is not a bowl of mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving that you get to just pass around the table and everybody gets a lump and we all get, and we all get some. That's not how it goes. This is why the Bible will tell you that whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of not the Baptist church, not the pastor, not you, not your family, you do it to the glory of God. But here's, here's the war that is constantly at play. We want some of the glory for ourselves. As much as we would love to say, you know what? I'm a Christian and I constantly give God his due. And, and my life is just all about the glory of God and the glory of God. And I just want people to be in awe of Jesus. I just want them to think more highly of Jesus. You tell me, you want people to be in awe of you sometimes? You want people to think highly of you sometimes? 
to the exclusion of God? No, not me, pastor, never. Eh, I'm not so sure. This is why we struggle and we chicken out on evangelism sometimes. Let's present the good news of Jesus. Let's present a glorious God. Let's help people understand who he is and think more of him. But I get real scared. Why? Because they may think less of me. They may think I'm cuckoo for Christian puffs. They may, they may think that I'm, you know, weird. They may think that I don't fit in. They may not invite me to their party. And they, so I won't do it. And I chicken out. What's happening? A glory war is happening. Them thinking highly of God or them thinking highly of you. That's what's happening. And recognize it as such and realize that you can and I can often rob God of glory. You can sing a song in the choir and teach a Sunday school lesson or be right here right now preaching a sermon, but it be about your own glory and what people think of you and how they're perceiving you. And oh, that was witty or that was clever. And I like the way I, he prepared enough. You can, you can make it all about you even when you're talking about God. I'm as guilty of this as anybody. What, it, what was the problem? The problem was self-glorification. Well, what else was the problem? Well, sin number two, and this is the centerpiece of the sins in Revelation chapter number 18, is this little phrase, this funny phrase. She's glorified herself, comma, and she's lived deliciously. You say, what does that mean? <laughs> she lives deliciously, right? Like, is she a glutton? Is she addicted to sweets? Like Babylon has a sweet tooth? Like, what are we talking about? Well, it told us previously, and we'll see more of this to come in, in a moment, but verse number three, that the merchants ratched, uh, waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. I'll, I'll explain more from the text in a minute, but here's the sum total of what it means that she lived deliciously. She addicted herself to luxury and comfort. This was a place that found a deep satisfaction in the luxurious, comfortable things that the world could offer. And it became like seawater. The more luxury they drank in, the more thirsty they became. And they were never satisfied by it. And this becomes a problem. Now, honestly, I don't know that I would have ever thought in a hundred years to go through Revelation and to say, you know, what do, we, what do we preach about? Oh, we should preach about the sin of wanting to addict ourselves to luxury and not being willing to suffer. I don't know that I ever would have thought that. But this is what, this is what it's going to say. This was their problem. They were so concerned about being comfortable that they could never do a hard thing they could never suffer. They could never do without. They became addicted to comfort. And that is a problem. That is a problem. Ignore like religion. That's a problem for a, for a city, for a country. That's a problem. When you have a population that is addicted to luxury and comfort, you cannot fill manual labor jobs with laborers because no one wants to do it. If you ever have to go to war, you're hosed. 
Fill an army with 20-something-year-old young men and young women who do not want to be uncomfortable or inconvenienced and want to constantly have this like snowflake life where everything is handed to me and everything is real neat and comfy and I never have sweat on my brow and I never have dirt under my fingernails and I never have a callus on my hand. That's bad for a country. Much less for Christianity. Because Christianity has a lot of descriptors, but one of the descriptors is that Christians should be people who are willing to suffer and see themselves as pilgrims on life. That this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Like that's a biblical idea. That I have a citizenship here, but my ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And if heaven is served by me being inconvenienced or even uncomfortable or suffering here, then I willingly choose that path, right? Like at the center of Christianity is this idea that there's a God who chooses to become man. I would argue probably far less luxurious to be man in the flesh than God in heaven. A God who chooses to become man, and when he is man, what does he do? He is a carpenter, he works a a manual labor job. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. He doesn't have a a home where he can just go and, and kick his feet up and just relax by his own fireplace. None of that. And ultimately everything drives to this moment where he will stare immense suffering and immense pain and torture in the face and he won't blink. Like that's the idea of Christianity. That Jesus will willingly choose to put himself on the hook of suffering and embrace the cross. And when they mock him and say, you delivered other people, why didn't you deliver yourself and get yourself off of that cross? He could have. But yet he chooses the cross, which can be described in many terms, glorious, merciful, wonderful, but no one ever called it comfortable, ever. And he chooses to do it. And then he turns to his followers and he says, hey, this is the way. This is the path. You, you, you hook up with me and people are gonna persecute you. People are going to besmirch you. People are going to ostracize you. People are going to make fun of you. It's not always going to be an easy road, but this is the way that it goes, right? And when you get a country, a city, a church, a generation of people who become so addicted to comfort that they can't do anything hard, it's it's really bad news bears. And I want you to think about, has there ever been a a society that is perhaps more addicted to comfort than ours? I don't, I mean, maybe there has been. I don't know that I can name one. To say that the average citizen in America lives like a king is a true statement. We get to eat meals that portions of the world will never even come close to touching just on an average Tuesday for lunch. We have amenities when it comes to 
pools and air conditioning and like indoor plumbing. Like it wasn't that long ago. Some of you have a camp like out an hour and a half from here where you still got an outhouse or something. Like it wasn't that long ago where that was not a thing, but we are surrounded by creature comforts, right? Like even in my own life, I can remember the days of the automobile where the seat wasn't ergonomically designed to, to really fit your body just right. And you had to eat, 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 eat the window, right? And admit how painful that was because it, it worked your forearm and the sun came through the window just at the right angle and it heated up that little metal knob and you burnt your hand for just a second, right? Like, I remember those days. I, I feel old saying it, but I, I remember. Not now, baby. Remote start that bad boy. I mean, heated seats, air conditioning seats, massaging seats. My, I don't have a massager in my car yet. I know some of you do. You got, you got the luxury brand and that thing's massaging your back as you go along. We live for this stuff, right? We eat it up. How can I be more comfortable? How can I live more comfortable? I, I mean, when are we gonna run out of beds that'll be more comfortable? <laughs> like we got, <laughs> we got numbers and temperatures and settings. And like, I don't know what we're gonna think of next, but we're gonna think of something else that's gonna be more comfortable than what we already got. And I am not advocating, so don't, don't misunderstand me. I am not advocating that all of us sell our cars, ride in unair conditioned horses and buggies, and that we start to use outhouses again. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying it is a problem when we, you, I, fall prey to literally an idol of comfort. And we become so addicted to it that we can't do anything hard for Jesus. I've, I mean, that mission trip, I don't, that's like a third world country. That's, that's just too risky for me. Listen, I'm, I'm not your insurance agent. I'm not trying to tell you what's risky and what's not risky, but come on. We can't ever do anything. We can't go anywhere where it's like a little bit unsafe. I'm not saying throw caution to the wind, but we, we got to, we got to stack the deck and make sure that we're insured against every potential negative outcome all the time and we're constantly comfy. That's not Christianity. There is a suffering sojourner mentality that the church should have, oftentimes doesn't have. I'm guilty as charged, just like many other people. And this was a mentality that this place had and they took their possessions and they heaped them up and the goal of their possessions was to make themselves comfortable. That was it. That's not what possessions are for. That's not what our stuff is for. That's not what our money's for. The goal of your money should not be me be as comfortable as I possibly can be the end. That's not the end. That's not the goal. There's actually a very biblical perspective on money. And I wanna share this with you quickly that you can have wrong perspectives and you can have a biblical perspective. And there's basically three. You take all the mindsets on money, they kind of boil down to three. The first one is what's mine is mine. It's a very greedy, selfish mindset. It is the stuff that I have is for me and for me alone. And oh, by the way, I want to get more of it. Proverbs 1 talks about this when it says, so are the ways of everyone that's greedy of gain. And the irony of those that are greedy of gain, it says, that takes away the life of the owners thereof. If you live to have and to get and to get, you won't actually get, you will lose life. Your life 
will be less substantive. You will have less happiness. You will have less joy. And what you think is accumulating is actually detracting from your life. But those are the people that say what's mine is mine. And there, there are a lot of greedy people that exist. I could give, but I don't. I could help, but I won't. I could step up, I could bless a widow, I could uh, help in the foster care system, I could give to the missions program of the church, I could help uh, build a building that, that's gonna be built that other people are gonna worship in here in the near future. I could, I could be a part, I could sacrifice, I could write a check, I could, I could release some of my funds, but I won't because what's mine is mine. I'm selfish and I'm greedy. Don't live that way. A lot of, a lot of Americans live that way. Don't live that way. The second perspective is what's yours is mine. One is selfish, one is stealing, okay? This, the Proverbs talks about that when it talks about the horse leech that has daughters that cry and they're never satisfied. They never have enough. The horse leech is, is the thing that sucks the blood and the life out of something else, but it, it always wants more. And there are people that, that exist, like right now in our culture, perhaps in this room, that that's your perspective on money. If I have to steal it to get it, so be it. If I have to beg it off of someone over and over and over again, so be it. Some of you are raising these kids, right? When your child's four and they think that what's yours is theirs, okay, right? You give your four-year-old a Snicker bar, they start eating it. You're like, hey, can I have a bite? It's mine. What is it? Like, that came from my money, my resources. Like, you don't have that without me. But they're four. You give them a break, right? When they're 12, eh, maybe you should grow out of that. When they're 16 and they still think that all your money is their money and that it's your job to pay for everything, all their shoes and all their clothes and all their cell phone and all their insurance and all that, and you buy the cell phone for them, and then they tell you that, it, that it's theirs and they're in control of it. Like, yeah, it's a problem. What are you starting to teach? Well, what's, what's, what's yours is mine. No, 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 that's not how it works. What does that turn into? It turns into 26-year-olds who do deferred maintenance like on all of life. And they never take care of the, anything and they push everything off and then they come to you with their hand out like a horse leech wanting to suck the life out of you saying, give me, give me, give me, give me. No, that's not a right perspective. The proper perspective on our possessions is what's mine is his. That's how it works, right? Honor the Lord with your substance, with the first fruit of all thine increase. Honor God with your stuff. Well, is it to be used to honor God, so it's his, or is it my substance? Both. It's what he's given you. It's what he's blessed you with. You are, this is stewardship, right? It's not selfish. It's not stealing, it's stewardship. This is stewardship. The idea that this portfolio that I manage, whether it's my house or my car or some investments or the cash in the bank, whatever it is, this portfolio, I'm a manager of, and it ultimately belongs to him. It's his stuff. And I don't take this stuff and use it for my own good or incessantly for my own comfort or just to make my, my own life easier and easier and easier. I use this and I steward this in a way that he would want me to. So I give him the first fruits, I tithe and I give him some back right away. But then all the rest of it, I hold over here and I hold it open-handed. 
And I understand that God will put blessings in an open hand. But if I clench my fist and close it up, blessings don't fit in there no more. He can't get them in. You won't let him. You walk through life saying, this is yours, Lord. And when it's all said and done, the headline of what's mine is his means that you love people and you use money to help those people. Not, I love money and I use people. And we're gonna see in just a minute that Babylon loved money and it also used and exploited people in an effort to get money. That's not how it goes. You love people and you use money to help people. I got this letter in the mail uh, in the last week here. This was a letter from one of the widows of our church. And I did not even know that this was happening or that it had happened until I got a letter in the mail. I was like, oh, that was fantastic. But you know, as, as a church, we have a missions fund. We have a missions program. And uh, many of you give to that. You text in to give it or you give online or you drop it in the box or whatever. And thank you for doing that. There's over $300,000 that, that go all over the place, all around the world and bless missionaries and projects and people that are getting the gospel. But there are a large number of things that happen inside of our community. And we oftentimes celebrate those. The ones we almost never celebrate with you are the ones that happen kind of like in our church. Because generally the person is sitting here and that can get awkward you can start to pick up on, well, I know they had a need. Oh, the church met it. And it, it can just, you want to have confidentiality with people and you don't, you don't want to uh, make that awkward for them. But we asked this widow, can, we, can, I, can I share your letter without using your name? And she was like, yeah, that, that's perfectly fine. And, and here's, here's what she wrote. She said, I, I want to start by thanking you and the love that's been given to me by the church. She says, this trial with my car has been very stressful. It's produced a lot of anxiety. I know the Lord's been working through the situation, but I just, she's been a little dumbfounded at times. She's, she's been having a, a, a car issue, a big car issue. She goes on to say that I was amazed when so-and-so from the church called me and told me that I was going to be given a check so that my car repairs could happen. She writes and she just starts to say, like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And she says, I know our church does stuff for people, but I didn't think I would ever be on the receiving end of this. And the fact that I was, thank you. Now that's one little story and one little drop in a bucket. But like when we, even as a church, so in your own personal finances, but even in our church finances, when we put money in a bucket or a box or a plate or whatever, or we just give it digitally online, you know why we do that? For people. Chairs are chairs. I'm glad they're comfortable, but whoop-de-doo. This building, I don't know when it will be. You, you see this week that they, they collapsed the, the smokestacks down in, uh, in uh, was it Harmer or Cheswick? Cheswick? I don't know when the day will be when this building will collapse upon itself, but it'll come. Mark my words, eventually, maybe it's hundreds of years from now, this will be, it'll be nothing. It's wood, it's, it's, it's metal. Iron. That's not what money's about. Money's about people. You love people and you use money to reach people, to help people, to bless people. And here's the whole point. I've, I've beat the drum long enough. I'll move on. This was a place that was so addicted to their own luxury and they had money. They had opulence. 
that they couldn't let go of their own comfort. They couldn't help other people. They ended up, as we'll see in a minute, they used people in order to do it. Don't ever be that person. The third sin is arrogance. There's self-glory. There's this addiction to luxury. And then it tells you the end of verse number seven. What does it say? She says in her heart, I'm a queen and I'm not a widow and I see no sorrow. What happens when you get money is your net worth goes up and then all of a sudden your self-worth goes up. And if you're not careful, you'll get real arrogant. And you will think as Proverbs would say, the rich man's money is his own conceit. You will start to think that you're insulated from negative outcomes. And this is going to show she wasn't. This idea that I'm not gonna see sorrow, I'm not gonna see heartache, none of this is going to come my way, I'm fine, I won't be destitute, I'm not a widow, I'm a queen, look at me, this arrogant heart is going to be smashed in a moment by the Lord and his judgment. She was arrogant. I read years and years ago in a book this, uh, this phrase, and I loved it. It said, if wealth came over the counter, there would be a warning label on the prescription. It would say, warning, may cause arrogance. While taking this wealth, extra precautions should be taken not to offend people. If wealth is taken for prolonged periods, it may impair your perception, causing you to trust God less. And how true is that? This is the story of this place. And here it is, verse number nine. The monarchs, the merchants, and the mariners all begin to bewail that she's decimated. Verse number nine, here's what it says. The kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, they shall bewail her and lament her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. And each of these groups, it says they stand afar off. They were partners until it became costly or they were in danger and then they distanced themselves from her. They stand afar off for fear of her torment saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city for, (coughs) excuse me, and one hour is thy judgment come. The merchants of the earth, and it's gonna sound very redundant, they shall weep and mourn over her for no man buyeth her merchandise anymore. And listen to the merchandise, it's, it's categorized. Gold, silver, and precious stones of, and pearls. So the most luxurious items when it comes to uh, the precious stones, the most luxurious items when it comes to clothing, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, then the most luxurious items when it comes to furniture, all the thionine wood, the manners of vessels of ivory, the manners of vessels of the most precious wood and brass and iron and marble. Then the best when it comes to the, uh, the, the herbs or the, the cinnamons and the odors and such, cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense. Then the, the food, the wine, the oil, the fine flour and wheat. Then their food and their beasts and sheep and horses and chariots. And then listen to this. When I told you they loved money and used people, I know this because they also dealt in slaves and the souls of men. Wonder why God was upset with them? They had made merchandise of people. They're in human trafficking. Why? So that they can have money, so that they can live comfortably. Verse 14, the, the fruits that thy soul lusted after, they are departed from thee. All the things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee and thou shalt find them no more at all. You wanted to be comfortable? Look, the lazy boy is gone. The air conditioning's gone. Everything that you thought was going to provide is now gone. Verse 15, 
The merchants of these things which were made rich by her, they'll stand afar off for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour, so great riches has come to naught. And then here's the mariners, last group. The, the shipmasters, the sailors, as many as trade by sea, they stood afar off. And they cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads. And they cried, weeping and wailing, saying, alas, alas, the great city wherein we were made rich, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, in one hour she's made desolate. Now that's a really long way of saying she was arrogant. And she said, I'm not a widow. There's no sorrow. Look at me. Everything is fine and dandy. And boom, it was gone. In an hour, it says, quickly, unexpectedly. All of that self-conceit, all of that self-aggrandizing, all of that false security, toast. And the point that it's trying to make to you is that if you, remember verse four, get away from her. I don't want you to have her sins because if you have her sins, you're gonna have her plagues. Let me put it very simply. You live in a self-conceited way. You live in an arrogant way. You migrate your trust from God over to yourself. You start to trust in your money especially, but in anything other than God, mark my words. Don't mark my words, mark his words. The end of that is not pretty. It is destruction that comes to you and you never saw it coming. Do, please, do not think that you have life by the tail and that you got it all figured out and that everything's okay because you're hot stuff. That's not how it works. And if, and if you're honest for a minute, like guys, you can't even stop your male balding pattern from, from like migrating around your head. I'm with you. You can't even stop your own, your own stinking hairs from falling out. And you're going to protect like the world and your life and your family from all negative outcomes. Like, is this where we're at? Like we feel so proud when we get our brisket accurate on Memorial Day. We have a temperature controlled green egg with a thermometer in that bad boy. Like how could you possibly cook easier than that? And when we get that out and it's just the right temperature and juicy, we feel proud of ourselves. If you struggle to control the temperature of your brisket inside of your green egg, you think you can control life? But we're these people, like we are these people who know we can't control that, but somehow we fool ourselves into thinking that we can control everything else. And it's silly. It's utterly silly. And here was this place that thought they had everything. And they, they were all good. And God said, you're about to learn a lesson. And it's gone in a moment, in a heartbeat. End of the chapter, they begin to celebrate. It's this ding dong, the witch is dead moment, right? Verse 20, so rejoice over her. The people of God, man, this is good. We didn't want this city. It's an inhabitation of demons and this false idolatry. And there's, there's all of this, uh, all of this slavery that's happening. And it, it just, we didn't want this, right? So we rejoice over her. Heaven 
holy apostles and prophets. <coughs> For God has avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a stone, a great millstone. He cast it into the sea. And here's what he said. Thus with violence shall that great city be thrown down. She shall be found no more at all. The voice, and this is going to be pretty redundant, but it paints a picture. The voice of harpers and musicians and pipers and trumpeters heard no more. No craftsman, whatever craft he shall be, shall find any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more in thee. No music, no working. Verse 23, the light of a candle shall no more at all be in thee. The voice of a bridegroom and a bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. No more weddings, no more joy. For the merchants were great men of the earth. And by thy sorceries were all the nations deceived. Here's the last sin of, of Babylon. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all that were slain upon the earth. She was murderous. What is that saying? That is saying for Babylon, lights out, game over, belly up, six feet under, closed for business, toast, done, it's over. And here's, here's the point of Revelation 18 for you. It is a shot across the bow. It is God in his mercy and in his grace and in his wisdom saying, don't do life this way. Don't do it this way. Don't put yourself up on a pedestal. Don't worship yourself. Don't be arrogant. Don't pursue money and comfort and make that what really has your heart's affection. Don't do it that way because it ends poorly. It'll be disastrous for you. It'll be disastrous for your family. It'll be disastrous for the people that associate with you. And he's trying to help you. And man, if there's ever like a list of sins that an American people need to be warned of, I don't know that I could come up with a better list. For us to say, let's, let's love God. Let's put him first. Let's glorify him and exalt him. Let's make him the centerpiece of our life. Let's, let's be open-handed through life and not affix our emotions to our possessions. Let's, let's be willing to humble ourselves and not be arrogant. Let's be those people. 